Just a warning for Indigenous listeners, if this conversation raises anything for you, consider calling 13 Yarn 139276, the 24-7 National Support Line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Black Bias, an in-depth look at the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the news. A special fourth estate coming to you through the studios of 2SER and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist and broadcaster. I spent almost two decades at the ABC working across news, TV documentaries and national radio programming amongst other things and have been in the media game for nearly 25 years. And I'm Madeline Heyman Reba, a proud Gomorrah woman and Indigenous affairs journalist. I've worked in the media for 11 years across commercial, community, and Indigenous media, including NITV, 10 News First Melbourne, and community radio. Something that Madeline and I come up against as Indigenous journalists is how our indigeneity somehow means we can't be objective or that we bring bias to our jobs when reporting on our own communities. That's right, and it has happened within the newsroom from our colleagues and from our audience. As journalists, our work is always factual and brutally honest, but it seems that speaking our truth is frowned upon across much of the industry. That's why we decided to call this six-part series Black Bias as a way of looking at how the media has represented our communities during major health crises, ownership of land and racism. While the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the news has indeed come a long way in how our communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets, unfortunately, the negative stereotypes, deficit narratives and unethical practices continue. Yeah, Maddie, talking about those stereotypes and the go-to narratives, it's probably a good place to start when we talk about the reporting of race. And the media is a powerful beast. And while it keeps you informed and introduces you to new ideas, It's also there to keep the institutions in our society, like the government, accountable and transparent. But when it gets the narrative wrong or puts the attention on the wrong person, it can be very hard to correct after the fact. The disappearance of Cleo Smith in October last year is one such case, but also an example of incorrect information being set straight. The four-year-old went missing from a campsite in Western Australia but was found alive and well 18 days later in the home of a 36-year-old man who has since pleaded guilty to forcibly taking a child under 16. But this man was not the man initially targeted by the media and a man who had nothing to do with the case found himself front and centre of it. Nada Media is the voice of the Pilbara and based at Roeburn in Western Australia. As you'll hear, it broke the story that the man whose picture was all over the media was in fact not the man who had taken Cleo. Tangiora Hinaki is the CEO of Nada Media. Tangiora, at what point did Nada Radio start following her disappearance? So this happened uh, early November 2021. We received a media release, shocked, shocked. No one wants to hear that a child's gone missing. Knew that we had to turn this around for the news. Um, my son was actually camping at the blowholes at the time, so he also sent me a message um, was helping to look for little uh, Cleo. Police were present. He did say that there was some caravans that had already left and he was a little bit concerned about that before the police had arrived. But we were covering it the same as every other media outlet um, across Western Australia that received that police media release. 
So can you talk us through how you found out that the media had identified the wrong man? Sure. So Terence, his auntie, uh, we spoke with Nyamo woman, Karen Beasley, because she reached out to the Ngana Media Facebook page. She was frantic on the phone. She said, Ngana Media, you have to let everybody know that that's the wrong person. They got it wrong. How can you tell Seven News? I've messaged them. I'm not getting any answers. And I said, that's okay. Let's have an interview. Ngana Media will get that story out now, ASAP. So pretty much straight into the studio on the phone. We had a yarn, uh, put the story out, and then I saw it already starting to gain momentum, which was what we wanted, so that Terence Flowers could uh, feel a little bit better about seeing you know, his face splashed everywhere. And not only that, um, when I did eventually speak to him, he did say that they you know, were happy when they heard that Cleo had been found, but then all of a sudden that dissipated when they saw that his photo was up there. His auntie then said that uh, she'll reach out to Terence on my behalf, and uh, we locked in an interview for the next day. I met him at the hospital, and, yep, he was there having a yarn, uh, shaky, having a smoke, uh, still quite distraught. He told me that he went to the Karatha police and just broke down crying, Karatha police did everything that they could as well to try and let uh, the media outlet know. But when I did speak to the senior sergeant, he said, look, this is really out of, you know, our jurisdiction. We can't get through. I don't know what to do. Um, but I'm just here for that young man. And he supported him, which I thought was lovely. And Tangiora, he was at the hospital initially, wasn't he, when he found out that his face had been plastered everywhere across the media and he was getting phone calls. And so I guess when you secured that interview with Terence, I mean, how did you approach talking to a guest who was clearly distressed by what had happened? Well, uh, first of all, I would not have approached him if I didn't get the heads up, but I had had a phone call with him on the mobile phone. So if you speak to the talent and they're saying yes and amen, well, then you're good to go. Of course, when you get there, you want to read their body language to, to see how they're going, uh, not push them too much as well to get straight into it. So we had a bit of a banter before I started to film with the camera. And, you know, he was just downcast, having a smoke, shaking a little bit and just telling me how distraught he was and, you know, thinking that they think it's me. They think that I'm the one that um, took, uh, little Cleo so I just assured him we ha and had a yarn we had one of our Ngalama broadcasters with us as well so you know they had a good old yarn but his missus had the baby she was like um, you know his cheerleader saying come on you can do it we need to let them know they can't get away with this they need to tell uh, do their jobs properly and then yeah he was ready to go we set up the camera and we started rolling at first he was reserved but then just slowly started to open up. And I guess that's also the power of black media to make someone feel so comfortable with you as a journalist and to be able to tell their story and in this case, get justice. So what did it mean for Nada Media to give this man a voice? Well, uh, it meant that we led the national news. It, it meant that we had major mainstream media outlets quoting us. Ghana Media spoke with, you know, and which I thought was awesome. We're a tiny media station. You know, we are 18 hours south of Perth if you were to drive to where we are. We have 900 people that reside in our little community alone, but we are the only media, Indigenous media station across the Pilbara that represent the 31 tribes here. Uh, so 
our mob, our people, our audience, they were also cheering us on. We were all proud as a collective voice because Ghana Media is the voice of the traditional owners of the Pilbara. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, Maddie and I have these conversations all the time, Tangiora, about, you know, the importance of Indigenous media and particularly Indigenous radio. And I guess this is a time when Indigenous radio were able to help someone correct the wrong narrative. And that often doesn't help. I mean, as you were saying, he went to the police, they couldn't help him. He didn't know what else to do. And, you know, again, 900 people in a place where probably most don't know where this radio station is. But to then see yourselves quoted, I mean, that is, doesn't that just bring it home even more about the importance of Indigenous media and why you do what you do and why, you know, the rest of your station do what they do? Most definitely. You know, First Nations media outlets, community, radio, uh, we are across the nation. First Nations Media Australia is an umbrella that most of us sit under and they're there as well to support us. So recently we uh, were able to have a partnership with the ABC where we can have four stories a month legaled by the ABC lawyers uh, and that's pro bono. See, and those are, those, that's the support that we need so that we can be bold truth tellers because being a tiny media station, we ain't nobody got time to get sued. We ain't got money for that business, but we do want to be bold and we want to tell these stories and give people a voice. That that was like a historical moment. I'm, I'm going to tell you, like, we've never had a story in my time of the six years that I've been here uh, that has been so successful and also successful in bringing justice because, as you know, this year uh, the case settled and Mr uh, Flowers was very happy. Tangiora, looking back on that story, what would you say about the media coverage and how they reported the race of the person who would later be charged with Cleo's abduction. So you mean in regards to an Aboriginal person? Look, I think like it's no secret, like media's been doing it for years. They, all, they love putting the, the race of the person, especially if it's an Indigenous person. Um, when I think about when Roburn, I felt we all felt as a community, we were demonised when uh, that the news broke concerning the sexual abuse of people across the Pilbara. There were, it was a massive operation. A lot of people were charged. And guess what the headlines were? Um, Roburn. Roburn, a town where pedophiles thrive. Uh, all over the world. But it wasn't just Roburn. It was Tom Price, Paratha. There were surrounding towns. But we have been in the news and misrepresented um, for many, many stories. You got to, and this is just a, another one. So, Ngana media, I think all Indigenous media need to be quick to then put out a story that's balanced, that challenges what mainstream media is saying and holds them to account as well. But, you know, they're just, Channel Seven's done it so many, many times. If you saw Media Watch, uh, and it's just, they never learn. I don't know. I just think they think. They are untouchable. And I guess that's the thing that keeps coming up and up again is, you know, the inference when it is around race and when they report race, that it's very clear what that narrative is and what is also being said in a very subtle way, but in a very direct way as well. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, from being on the other side of the country, watching all of that unfold for particularly the 
the poor, you know, Mr. Flowers, who was wrongly identified. Um, I can only imagine what that was like in trying to then claim back your identity, but also knowing that they were pointing out that there was an Aboriginal person who took, you know, allegedly at that stage took this little girl um, and everything that comes with that as being an Indigenous man as well. Yeah, uh, not most definitely. It, it's sort of getting ahead of yourself before you've had time to truly fact check and get your story right. And, and at the end of the day, it's, you know, they were busting themselves to be first without being patient, waiting for the correct information to come through. So you spoke to Terence after his defamation settlement against the Seven Network. Were you the only media outlet to get that interview? Yeah, we broke that story too. How deadly was that? <laughs> I know, but you know, but again, that comes down to relationship. That comes down to us, and this is what we teach our First Nations reporters, that uh, <laughs> to be a hound dog, <laughs> not so much a hound dog, but you know, keep your finger on the pulse, check in, build that. So when, because it was the, it was the lawyer, and I can't remember the company he was from, but he reached out to Mangata Media Page. And, that, and we passed that on. So that was where, where that relationship came from. There were so many lawyers that were reaching out to us. Can you please let Terence know about us? You know, But I thought, no, we'll go with this mob because they had a recent victory with another case that, that involved um, an Indigenous um, story. Oh, yes, the Channel 7 news panel. Remember that one? And they were, all, they were, they were white talking about Indigenous affairs. So they wanted to go uh, with him. So because of that relationship, he then said to me, look, Terence doesn't have a laptop. You know, so we go the extra mile. So Ngana Media, yes, we're reporters, but we do things like we'll go and set up a laptop for mob if they need to have that important meeting. And of course, what's it for us as well is that we'll get to have a yarn afterwards. And I think with Indigenous media, and that's what I love about it, is that going the extra mile. You know, family asked you to come and film their funeral because of COVID restrictions. And you and we do that, you know, and it's on a Saturday and a Sunday. And then, and because of that, they feel comfortable with you. They, you know, you, you're more than just a, a media outlet. You're, you're actually have a relationship with these people and that's why they trust uh, to tell you. So yeah, we were able to be there. We were, I was able to look in at the hearing with uh, uh, Mr. Flowers and they was just like, I tell you that, you know, that heaviness was lifted from the family. Uh, he could only say what he could say. We couldn't have a full blown yarn because of, um, you know, what was put in place by the lawyers and the, the hearing. But I'm so happy, definitely happy for that family uh, and uh, their future. Tang Yorta having broken both of those stories and definitely kudos to Nada Media for doing that too. Um, I, I wonder if you have advice around, you know, after seeing the effect of what happens when race is used in reporting, when the wrong person is identified um, who is also of that race and what you think media needs to think about when they are reporting on events like this in understanding if that effect that it can have on the people that are being targeted stick to the facts uh you know don't try to make the story more than it is think about first nations people and and the history 
colonization. Uh, also, how far they, how far Indigenous mob have come across Australia after all that they've been through. And think about how, when you start to write this article, after all uh, the trauma, you know, and, and it does, it does, it's generational. This is my own belief. You know, think about reporting it in a way that is respectful, culturally sensitive, factual, and not embellished to, to sensationalize and make it more than what it really is. It's a fine line you tread when reporting race in a story. Sometimes when race or indigeneity in this case is excluded, it obscures racism. However, when race is the feature, it encourages racism and demonstrates media stereotyping and criminalization of groups based on race and indigeneity. So he gets to decide whether race is an important factor in reporting or not. Yeah, that's a good question, Rihanna. Most editorial guidelines will recommend only mentioning race when it's relevant to the story. But who is the one deciding if race is included in a story or not? The journalist, the editor, experts, the individual or group being subjected to the reports, or the audience? And out of these possible people, are any of them Indigenous or of the race of the person being reported on in the story? Sometimes the decision to not mention race can discount the possibility of race being a factor in cases of police violence. For instance, a 2014 ABC News story about a woman blinded in one eye after being tasered by a police officer didn't mention race, while race was also left out of a report by a Perth Now story about the wrong man being held and drugged at a mental hospital after being mistaken for an escaped patient. Someone who's looked into how race is used in the media is Andrew Yakubovic. Andrew is an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and has published widely on ethnic diversity issues and media studies. Andrew, the research you led in 1994 produced the book Racism, Ethnicity and the Media. What did you discover about the media industry at the time when it came to race and reporting? Well, it was a very interesting period, Rihanna, because it was just before the internet, right? So it's sort of, it was the last gasp of being able to look at the old media. And I think the main findings then were that the media broadly reflected the power structures of Australian society at the time. So it was dominated by older white men, usually from origins in Northwestern Europe, uh, often in the United Kingdom. Um, and that the uh, critical decisions that were made in the media really spoke to their prejudices and their assumptions about the way in which the world operated. Beyond that, there was also a constant series of, in a sense, conversations, which were really about, looking back at it, about white privilege. But whether one looked at uh, magazines like the Women's Weekly or uh, Talkback Radio, as it was then very popular, or uh, television advertising, even sort of mainstream soapies, whatever it might be, in all dimensions of the media, Australia, Australia's media um, reflected those worldviews of the sort of the dominant groups and didn't really reflect the diversity that was already apparent in the Australian society very widely at that time, and particularly in relationship to Indigenous people. Almost total absence of the First Nations other than as a problem, um, I think was very interesting. That obviously has changed over time. Uh, First Nations people are much more 
um, both assertive and apparent in the media. And I think that's been a fantastic advance. But many of the issues um, haven't been resolved and many of the power structures that existed 30 years ago remain in place rather too um, solidly, I fear. It's been nearly 30 years since that publication, but how far has the Australian media come since then? Well, I think there are two, two different sorts of distances they've travelled. One is the technology has been completely transformed. So the idea of large newspapers and broadcast electronic media has, they're still around, but they've been um, sort of opened up by the emergence of digital media and, um, and user-generated content. So the diversity and the complexity of the media landscape is enormous compared to the way it was before the internet horizon or before the internet dawn. The ownership structures are still fairly similar in the mainstream. Um, the, the same groups still seem to dominate. They're older white men from uh, fairly wealthy backgrounds of whose origins some generations ago from the Northwest Europe, often, often from the UK. Um, we still don't see very much diversity at the managerial level in the media. The participation and representation of diversity is much better than it was, but the the narratives about that diversity, um, I think, are still um, struggling to overcome the sort of long heritage of white Australia and the and the post-colonial experience. So I guess, Andrew, I mean, what are the benefits then of, of having people from diverse backgrounds involved in the media? And I mean, not just what is public facing, but also what is happening behind the scenes in terms of who's staffing and working in those organisations. Absolutely. I think that's a very important question. I remember once um, talking to one of the members of the Wogs Out of Work group, which may sound a, a bit bizarre these times because it was a long time ago, but um, Wogs Out of Work was one of the first big sort of popular ground up um, pushbacks against the uh, sort of white Australia, uh, Europe, the Northwestern European model of Australian media. He was saying to me, he ran a club at that point in um, Brunswick, uh, in Melbourne, and he said, look, the, the big issue is that until you change the, uh, the people who make the decisions about what happens in the media, you're really not going to change the media very much itself. And that always struck with me. So we know that at a certain level in media organisations, there's more diversity than there was. We know that in the stories and the narratives and the issues, particularly, if you like, in the more edgy areas of the media, there's much more diversity and engagement. But I'm, I guess probably the best example I can give you of why this stuff is important was an experience I had talking with the ABC radio some years ago when Walid Ali was, doing, was brought in to do drive time uh, on Radio National. And um, this was quite a breakthrough for the ABC. And he proved to be a very popular person and he's gone on to a huge, you know, a huge sort of uh, impact in Australian media. But he did two things. Firstly, he expanded the range of topics that were seen to be legitimate issues for conversation. And he brought an expertise to dealing with those issues, which was uh, extremely important. And he also, for the first time, 
opened up for people like radio technicians and editors and people like that who came from, uh, from diverse backgrounds, the thought that perhaps they could actually work in this organisation. Because one of the things that um, sort of overwhelmingly white organisations do is indicate to people who aren't of that, that, that background that this is not a place for them. And if it's not a place for them, they don't apply and they don't get jobs and the place just reproduces itself over and over again. And there's a lot of evidence that this actually occurs, even with the best um, access and equity policies and all the rest of it. People read organisations by what they do, not by what they say. Right? When organisations change the decisions about how they're going to present themselves, that is what they do rather than what they say, then you start opening it up to many more people and they become much more diverse and diversity becomes less of a challenge and more of a resource. And I think those, that transformation is really important. I think some organisations have done that fairly well and some organisations have done that very poorly. What are the economic benefits of having diverse media organisations? Well, I think the, the, the main economic value of having diversity in organisations is that it rapidly increases the size of your potential audience. I mean, that's you know, in the simplest form, right? But country like Australia, the other thing that's really important is that it opens up new markets internationally, right? We are a society which has both got a very strong and creative Indigenous component and a very significant diasporic component, right? The world is extremely interested in Indigenous narrative and Indigenous presentation. So that's one side of it. And it's also the, the diasporic communities are also linked in and caught up with many other communities all over the world. So as these things develop um, and expand, um, you get a sense of how creativity and econ economy go together. And how do you think the Australian media has gone in the reporting of issues and events about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? The Australian media, um, I think, has been challenged by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories since the first newspapers were set up in the early part of the 19th century, um, late 18th century, really. Because of our, our colonial history, I like to think of the Australian media in relationship to Indigenous people as basically being foreign media, right? So these are foreign media trying to cover stories in another country. And what we know from, for instance, the Australian media's coverage of international stories is that they always set up the story from our point of view. They look for whoever they are, you know, whoever we are, uh, usually sort of white Australia. They look at it from our point of view. And I think that's basically the, um, the way in which the Australian media engages with Indigenous Australia, for the most part. I mean, there, there are some clear um, differences. You very rarely see the world through Indigenous eyes in the Australian media. Right? There may be interviews with Indigenous people. There may be occasional opinion pieces. There may even, say on the ABC, the um, document and, and um, Indigenous uh, NITV, uh, you may see programs which are created by Indigenous filmmakers and documentarists and so on. But in the overarching mass of material that most Australians experience, 
the Indigenous story is never part of the our story. It's always part of their story or them. And I think it's that um, objectification of Indigenous experience which is so challenging for the Australian media. It's been argued by scholars, you know, or people talking about this in other countries in relationship to people of colour, that um, usually in white-dominated societies, people of colour appear in one of two or three different stereotypical roles. They appear as sports people, right? So there's their, their physicality is stressed. They appear as threats. Their criminality is stressed. Or they appear as exceptions. That is, people who have somehow or other remade themselves so they're not Indigenous or not people of colour. They're, they're like as though they were not who they are, right? And we, we've got so many different, you know, histories and examples of that in Australia. But overall, the interest in Indigenous affairs, if I can call it that, is a function of how relevant or important or challenging or dangerous um, those issues are for the dominant white population. Andrew, you mentioned there, you know, that othering that happens in media. And I think um, this is a really good lead on from that of, um, you know, that you've also been researching around the media during COVID. And I guess, what have you observed in the way that the media has approached the pandemic, for instance? Well, I think the, the Australian media in the pandemic has had, have had a lot of different um, issues, partly because it's essentially a story about powerful white people fighting each other over directions of what to do. And that's been the primary narrative, right? So it's focused on the prime minister, the ministers, all those sorts of things, right? And there've been um, various subtexts, but the issues that have not really been addressed um, until they, uh, in a sense, confront people in ways that they can't avoid, and then only they're only addressed for a short time, are issues like the, the very high rate of deaths amongst people of colour. There've been huge issues concerned with what happened, what's happened to Indigenous people during the, during the, the pandemic and continues to, to be. They have not been really well dealt with. Um, it's taken an enormous amount of effort from Indigenous media workers and from Indigenous organisations to raise the profile of these issues and push them forward. And again, they're usually framed by a concern about what this tragedy will mean for white Australia rather than what it means for, for Black Australia. We had during the middle of the, the pandemic the whole Black Lives Matter sort of movement emerging, and that got reasonable, like reasonable neutral coverage. The stories, were, the, the narratives were told and so on. But again, overwhelmingly, uh, the narrative was that the Black Lives Matter protests, in, which in a sense found space because of what was happening to people, were irrelevant to dealing with the, the big issues, which was... How do we protect white Australia from um, the virus and particularly those people who behave in ways that threaten the well-being of white Australia? Right? So um, the media was in generally very supportive of the quite draconian measures that were taken against people of colour in the, in the cities um, and in the uh, the cultural, linguistic, diverse, but more working class areas of the cities where the virus really took off like a rocket, 
I remember thinking when um, the Prime Minister said, this is not a race around the introduction of the vaccine. I thought, well, it may not be a race for you guys, but for people who are vulnerable, it is, it is not simply a race, it's a sprint. Because the, the virus, if the virus gets to them before the vaccine does, then they won't be the ones who are toppled most dramatically and most continually. And that, that proved, in fact, to be true. And I think the media, in a sense, sits with this idea. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a generalization and the media has many different aspects, but broadly the media sits with the idea that um, the governments have reiterated that we live in the best, most successful multicultural society in the world. So there's not much more we have to do about that and that the issues that arise are a consequence of what, what minorities do themselves rather than the conditions that, that the society as a whole creates for them. So it's, in a sense, the victims are always blamed for their bad behaviour or their failures rather than um, understanding the society and its media as part of a, an overarching um, broad like a system of meaning making. In the conversation last year, you wrote about the need for ethnicity data to be collected during COVID testing. What impact could this have had on the way the media was reporting outbreaks in culturally and linguistically diverse communities? Well, it would have had, I think it would have had two effects. One is um, we would have actually have seen ways in which people were being missed in this process, like the, the, the big issue that I argued for was not so much knowing who was being tested or who was getting COVID, that that was important, but it was who was not being tested. Where are the areas that people are not being reached, not being getting the information? Had we understood the way in which, um, for instance, the anti-vax movement or the you know, many of the scare campaigns around responding to the virus if we understood that a bit better we might have been able to do something do a, a great deal more and in fact at the moment as i'm speaking with you the government is considering how it's going to release data around vaccination because they now after many 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 um, months of pushing by people like myself and others from the from the communities um, the government agreed that it would and analyse what was happening in terms of vaccination by language groups across the country and by local areas. So for the first time early this year, we were able to see all the groups that were most vulnerable. Knowing that and getting using that information to make contact with people who are particularly vulnerable has an enormously beneficial outcome. Right. And many of those groups were groups of people of colour, people coming, people who came from refugee backgrounds, etc. If that information, constructed so it doesn't blame the victim clearly, was available to the broader population, uh, it would have done an enormous amount to undermine many of the uh, sort of scare campaigns that were running around on social media, because there was no real authoritative information about what was really happening to Australia's diversity. I guess overall, Andrew, I mean, how does Australian media compare to, I guess, other parts in the world when it comes to race and media and, and the work that you've done over these last few decades? The Australian media is aware, increasingly aware, of the diversity in the society 
but continually reflective of a very self-satisfied attitude amongst dominant groups in the society you know that that compares us in some way to other societies right? without looking at the the truth necessarily of what's going on um, if you look at the the media in the united states in canada in new zealand in the uk let's just stick with the english-speaking countries let alone the countries in which english is not the first language in each of those cases you have a much better quality of data of information about what's going on about in in culturally diverse populations and a much wider uh, penetration by culturally diverse media workers throughout the media right? a situation where the australia you know, with the australian media which is so overwhelmingly white in its appearance and practice and so overwhelmingly culturally deprived as a consequence i remember once again um, being in a seminar with the um, chief of staff of the daily telegraph you know he was being asked you know if you had a story about a, an ethnic community right um, and you had a choice of a journalist from that background versus a journalist who was from the white mainstream who would you send and without even blinking he said i'd send a white journalist and he was then asked, why is that? And he said, because they wouldn't be biased. Right? Um, they might be ignorant, but they wouldn't be biased. So he was then asked, and you've got a story um, about a rugby league team. Would you send someone who knows about rugby league? Or would you send someone, send someone who has never played rugby league, doesn't even know what it's about? And he said, of course, I'd send somebody who knows about rugby league. And I think that's, um, you know, that's a very good um, exemplar right, of the sorts of things. Now, I think part of the reason is that the, the hierarchy in the media are very uncomfortable about having, uh, let's say, journalists for a moment, having journalists who come from communities and actually know a lot about them because they don't, and they don't know how to assess what those journalists bring back, right? So that suggests that what you need is hierarchies made up of people from different cultural backgrounds who have a lot of knowledge about communities and stories and all the rest of it, and charge on, because they, are, and they do understand the subtleties, they do understand the nuances, they do understand the, the cultural sensitivities and they don't go in like bulls in china shops so to speak right they um they behave in much more respectful but no less analytically uh sharp ways to to their um their uh, their other media workers who may not have the similar sorts of, uh, of information thanks to emeritus professor andrew yakubovic and tangiora hinaki the ceo of nada media this has been a special episode of Fourth Estate on 2SER. Black Bias has been made possible with the amazing support of the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Group at the University of Technology, Sydney, indigenousx.com.au and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Technical production by Marlene Even at the 2SER studios on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. 
Research by Professor Heidi Norman, Archie Thomas, Camilo Montalegre Sanchez, and Claire Cooper Southam. I'm Rihanna Patrick. And I'm Madeline Heyman Reba. Thanks for joining us.